2: american glutton podcast has a patreon do you hate commercials well we've got a patreon do you want bonus episodes that's on the patreon do you want to hang out and chat in our discord channel that's part of the patreon too we even have an option where you can leave me voicemails all on the patreon so check it out today patreon.com slash american glutton we have a patreon Take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. American Glutton is brought to you by Trifecta. Trifecta is the perfect tool for diet and maintenance adherence. It reduces time, thought, and effort in making sure I am never without the food I need to succeed. Go to www.trifectanutrition.com slash American Glutton where you will get 40% off your first order. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Peter Atia with his focus on the applied science of longevity. Today, we are going to talk about increasing lifespan and delaying the onset of chronic disease while simultaneously improving healthspan, quality of life. You can find him on Instagram at Peter MD. Peter Atia, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me.
2: Uh, so... I, I uh, I'm somewhat enamored by you, mostly because when I listen to you talk, you want to strip um, nutrition of any kind of like religious dogmatic kind of overview. And then I hear you talking about like people setting their objectives and basing their eating schedule or requirements or restrictions around that. And it's really unlike any of what we get, you know, the majority of the people I talk to or about, it's like, what is your number one objective? And it's like weight loss and like, okay, that's a fairly simple paradigm. But then as you lose weight, your objectives can change. And and I'm just think you're doing God's work. Sorry to put it into religious terms.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know that I'm doing much of anything, but uh, happy to talk about it.
2: you, You present it in such a way that like, because you know, I don't, I don't want to really trash anybody, but I think there's even um, amongst the quote unquote science people who say, I'm a science person that they assume that we all have the exact same set of values or objectives. And so when you undercut that by saying, we can't assume that what are your objectives? And based on that, we can use science to figure out the best plan that, that is uh, Revelatory. That's not being done by scientists.
1: I mean, it probably is. I, I, I think the bigger issue I have with nutrition is um, it's a very asymmetric tool, in the sense that I, I think most people are either spending way too much time thinking about it or not enough time thinking about it, and there there really is a Goldilocks place for nutrition where like, it should occupy some of your attention. But, you know, if you spend too much time on social media, you come away realizing like there's an entire cult of people within all the different religious sects who, you know, their, their religion is the best religion. And that's the only thing that they think about. Um, But the reality of it is, if you're in pretty good health, like, I don't think nutrition's going to do that much more for you. You know, if you, if you sort of think of like, this is like kind of a baseline, like this is being, you know, in very good health. Um, of course, most people are below that now in, in, in the United States in the year 2022. So that means there's a lot of opportunity to go from here up to here. But I think once you're here, it's kind of like sleep. You know, if your sleep really sucks, you got to fix it. But once you're sleeping well, you don't really need to spend that much time thinking about it. Right. Um, And that's different from exercise. You see, exercise to me is much more interesting because there's no person on the planet that isn't going to be made better with a more finely tuned exercise program. So if you're kind of below that optimal line of health, well, you've got to be exercising more, but exercise also brings what we call alpha, right? And in investing, alpha is you know, returns above and beyond what the market's going to return, right? So, you know, a hedge fund wants to return alpha sometimes. And I just don't think there's much nutritional alpha. I don't think there's much sleep alpha. I think there's a lot of exercise based alpha. And to your point, yeah, I think that, you know, the goals are just sort of assumed as weight maintenance, but, you know, what about putting on muscle mass? You know, shouldn't that be a goal? Uh, I sort of people here, you know, people who know me, hear me say this all the time, but it's like, just round it to the nearest hundred. Tell me how many 80 year olds in the history of our species over the past, just say the last million years said, I wish I had less muscle mass. I wish I was less strong. Just, just round it to the nearest hundred, even to the nearest thousand. Like what's that number, right? It's zero. <laughs> it's freaking zero. Right? right. So, so You know, yeah, it's great to be of a normal, healthy weight, but there are other things that matter a lot.
2: Yeah, with with exercise specifically, what are the what are the markers you're looking to improve?
1: I mean, with exercise, it it is, I think, the most complicated because it's so multifaceted, and and um, I mean, the way we look at it in our patients is we we care a lot about stability, uh, strength. Aerobic performance and um, peak aerobic performance. So aerobic base and then peak aerobic performance. So those are the metrics we're we're looking at. So um, stability is the hardest one to explain and define, but you know we have a, a series of tests that we put people through that basically demonstrate that they can safely transmit force from their body to the outside world, and their body can receive force from the outside world and dissipate it safely. And that there's no energy that's leaking in that system. So many of the injuries that people have are because there's there's an energy leak, right? When, you know, if you look at a world-class runner running, and then you look at someone who doesn't know how to run running, why is that world-class runner able to run 150 miles a week with no injury? And the, you know, the mediocre person, if they try to run five miles, their their hips and their knees and their back are going to hurt. Well, a lot of it has to do with the stability around those joints and how they're able to kind of transmit the force. The, the good runner can basically transmit force right to the ground. The ground hits them back and propels them forward. So it's a very clean transfer of force without slippage and energy loss. Um, strength, of course, matters immensely. In fact, I think along with VO2 max strength, probably has a higher degree of prediction for longevity with respect to all cause mortality than any other metric we can track. Um, and that's true of any health metric, like normal blood pressure, not smoking, not having type two diabetes, like all of those things, you know, high VO two max and high strength beat those things.
2: How, I, I, I've done VO two max testing. So I understand how that's done. How do you test for strength? And, and is it um, a curve based on muscle size and muscle mass? Like is that important? Cause I, I, I say this um, simply because for a few years now I have been lifting weights and I know that I have gotten stronger, but I'm not lifting specifically with strength in mind. So I know strength goes up a little bit, but it's not going up as though I was lifting specifically for strength.
1: Strength and lean mass are highly coupled. Um, so obviously when one goes up, the other one tends to go with it, but they, but they can be disaggregated, and we, if, if at least in the sort of largest series that that um, that I've looked at, strength seems slightly more important than lean mass. Um, but again, there are other advantages of lean mass besides strength. So more lean mass means more glucose disposal. Right, muscles are uh, a very important organ when it comes to our metabolic health. They're, they're basically the immediate sink for which we can deposit glucose. So, you know, more muscles that are more metabolically active gives you a lot more room and wiggle room with, with respect to what you eat, for example. Right.
2: Yeah. I, I, I seem to compartmentalize all my exercise. So I, be, I was obsessed with cycling and I just rode bikes for a long time and, and actually lost a bunch of lean mass, which was then disappointing to me as an outcome. But I had like a resting heart rate of 35 beats a minute and a very high VO2 mask and a high uh I didn't they were pricking my ear and tech testing lactic acid buildup and like that was really good. And and then I was like, Oh, I need more lean mass. So then um I got super into weightlifting, and then I was like, I don't care about anything except how I look. So for a long time it was weightlifting specifically designed about around that, but I found that like I could bench press a lot and, you know, do a straight leg deadlift with a lot. That was impressive numbers to me. But then in everyday life, I didn't feel as strong as I perceived myself to be. And so now I'm starting to go like, I think there's a little bit more to strength than what I'm doing. And I want to incorporate some of that. And I also want better cardio because I haven't been focused on that at all. Do you have a simple without somebody having to go to you? And, and is there a simple like um, palette of stuff that would uh, affect all of these things?
1: I mean, we're actually working on building something that so we can sort of transmit this info beyond our patients, because right now it's all done in a really bespoke manner with our patients, where, as you said, you you have to take a very specific training Uh, approach to this stuff. Um, like you, I mean, I've been, you know, all in on various different things, you know, all in on swimming, all in on cycling. Um, and you get very good at those things, but then you give up a lot. Um, and, and I think now that I'm pushing 50, you know, I'm sort of done with being a specialist and my goal is to be a generalist, but you still have to train specifically to be a generalist. It becomes in some ways harder in part because I have less time to train. I mean, it's very difficult for me to muster more than 14 hours a week to put into exercise in total, which I know for a lot of people is sounds like a lot for me, historically, that's a very little amount of time, but it's not going to go up. Like I'm, you know, until my kids are out of, you know, the house, like uh, 14 hours is going to be a good week of training. So how do I make the most of that with, you know, low end aerobic efficiency? So mitochondrial training zone two efficiency, high-end training for VO2 max strength stability. And then as you point out within strength, what matters, you know, grip strength matters. Lateral strength matters. Hip hinging strength matters. So it's not that I don't do curls, but like the, that's mostly just frankly, a way to do something else. So for example, like I like doing curls, kneeling down. So I'm kneeling, I'm at a sort of, you know, my hips are unhinged and I'm kneeling straight up doing curls. And all of a sudden now you're really having to work your hamstrings. So if you don't want to go flying forward, when you do that, you have to have your hamstrings fully engaged. So I'm kind of getting a two for the price of one. So a lot of times we'll kind of look to add that functional strength because that's, that's a common deficit. Most people have is they just don't have very strong hamstrings And it's very different to say your hamstrings are strong in an isolated movement, like a leg curl. It's quite another thing to be able to recruit that hamstring when you're doing a deadlift. Right. And it's very easy to do a deadlift using your back and not using your hamstrings, even though your hamstrings are strong. So if your hamstrings are strong, but you can't recruit them, you might as well not have them.
2: It is such a fine point too, because when you Feel, uh, I actually have trouble with this, and I do almost uh, like I would say like sixty percent of the deadlifts I do are straight legs. So the the point is all hamstrings or mostly hamstrings. And even then I'm having to think through recruiting the hamstrings. Like and
1: you're I, doing single leg or double
2: double. I can't, I have a bad patella on one leg. So there's no single leg, anything. This is another thing that I'm actually addressing now as I'm getting older too, I'm going like my knees suck. And uh, that's not cool because just walking around for a long time sucks. And I spend a lot of time in the gym I should address this. Like I should make my quality of life better, rather than just be uh, concerned with a six-pack. You know?
1: Yeah, for this, sure. I mean, this is what I'm juggling. <laughs> and what was your peak weight?
2: Five fifty.
1: How tall are you? Six two. Six, six one. Okay, and your weight now? Two seventy. Wow, that's pretty. And, and do you feel that that's pretty sustainable? Two seventy as a weight. Yep.
2: I mean, you know, 270 is like my maintenance weight. Um, If I want to have like veins in my abs, it's really 258. Um, But then I can't sustain that. There's no way I can sustain that. So 270, yeah. But even that, I I start to go like, that's a lot of weight for my knees to carry around forever. So what am I thinking about? Like when I'm 65, I don't know if this is sustainable. I, I think this might still be too heavy.
1: Yeah. Um, give a sense of what, like, what did you weigh at the end of high school? I, I was forced
2: to get on, I quit high school at 14. So at the end of high school, I don't know, I was overweight my whole life. I probably weighed three fifty to 400 pounds when I was, I, I weighed 400 pounds when I was 18. I weighed 200 pounds when I was 10. I know, I know that for sure. Wow. Um, and then by the time I was 22, I weighed 550, and that was where I topped out.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, there's, um, there is a price one pays in terms of their knees and, you know, you have to accommodate that. Right. So it might be that, look, you know, anything that's adding impact is just not going to be a good idea. You're going to get your cardio on a bike, on a rowing machine and, um, you know, you're not going to be run. You're not, you're not going to be on a stairmaster, uh, sprinting up, you know, doing, doing hill repeats on steps that said, you I want to be able up. to go for a hike, right? Yes, you want to be able to exactly. go for a hike. Yeah. yeah.
2: And, and strangely with my knees, I can go upstairs all day long. I can walk up 30 flights of stairs. No problem. I cannot come down a single flight of stairs without taking the stairs one at a time in some places. And I actually just did a Bizarrely, just did a movie where we spent like a whole day shooting a sequence where we're walking down flights of stairs. And I had to act like it wasn't agonizing pain. And it was every step that I'm not taking one at a time hurts my knees.
1: So, you know, there's a there's another example of what we what we were talking about earlier, which is the specificity around strength. So, you know, most people just think of strength as strength. But I think it needs to also be broken down. There's lots of ways to break it down. But one way to break it down is eccentric versus concentric strength. Right. Um, so for listeners, right, concentric strength is the strength in a muscle as it is shortening. So as you're walking up stairs, your quads are shortening. So that's your concentric strength. And as you're pointing out, you don't have any difficulty with that. When you're walking down the stairs, your quads are lengthening. Each step down is a lengthening of the quad. So eccentric strength is the strength in a muscle as it is getting longer. And almost for everyone, eccentric strength is grossly less than concentric strength. We tend to train concentric strength because gravity helps you, right? So when you're doing a bicep curl and you're lifting that weight up, that's the concentric phase. When you're putting it down, the gravity is helping you. So it's actually quite easy. You don't have to really do much, especially most people aren't going down very slowly. And so they're really not using the brakes, but that's the way to think about it. The eccentric part of the movement is the brakes. And I think as we age, that becomes the more important and more dominant strength. That's the one that gets people into trouble. You know, people don't fall going upstairs nearly as much as they fall going downstairs. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's good that you notice this now. So the question is now, how can you train that? And we, you know, we spend a lot of time training that kind of stuff. Like right?
2: focusing in on that kind of stuff.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm just recovering. I'm two weeks out of shoulder surgery. So there's a lot of stuff I can't do right now, but I can still do step up. So I'm going to, I'm still holding a dumbbell in my left hand and I'm stepping up and down off a bench and the down is super slow. I mean, I'm taking at least three seconds to descend off an 18 inch step. And I'm, I mean, that is really hard on those quads yeah. and I'm not loading like crazy. Cause I'm just doing one handed, but you know, when I'm back to being in my health, I'll have it with two hands. But when I would start somebody doing that, you're doing it with body weight and you might even do it with assistance. In other words, you might even have a band take, especially someone who weighs as much as you do. You don't need to hold a pound to do that you probably need a band to actually take some of the weight off you so that you can just get that muscle used to that eccentric load under, you know, a safe enough load that your sort of neurologic system allows you to control the direction of your knee and not let your knee collapse in and all the various things that people do when they're sort of overloaded.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I started, um, dragging a sled backwards. Yeah. And that and that I've, I've been doing that almost every day, six days a week. And that seems to be helping a, a, a good bit. I still notice going downstairs sucks for me. Um, but I, but, you know, it's, it, I, I think this is an important thing that, that we're talking about this simply because to, to your point, It's one thing to, and and this was kind of my life at 500 pounds. There was a lot of physical stuff that I just gave uh, that was just like, well, this is life. Everybody must have swollen feet at the end of the day. Everybody's knees must hurt. And then one day you wake up and you go like, I'm going to do something about this because I don't have to be a part of this group anymore that I'm just thinking is a part of life. And so like, yeah, I I I agree. I don't want my knees to hurt so bad going downstairs because I'm 45. And what happens when I'm 65? You know? Yeah. That's that's a concern. To that point, I like how you've broken down this this uh nutrition into like these three categories, like time restricted, uh caloric restricted, or nutrient. I think I'm saying that right, right? Like type of
1: food. Dietary restricted, yeah, yeah. Dietary element restricted. of it, yeah.
2: When when you when you are talking to people about this, is there a number one thing that you go like X will improve your quality of life overall?
1: Again, I think it depends on where you're starting from. So, the whole purpose of this idea of thinking about time restriction or TR, dietary restriction or DR, caloric restriction or CR, these are just three different knobs or levers that you have to you know, extract yourself from the gravitational pull of the standard American diet. And so I kind of always want people to start by understanding, you know, the middle of the grocery store, that's the standard American diet. And I would say like 90% of people, if they eat whenever they want, as much as they want of whatever they want, are going to be sick. That that's just that, you know, I think there's a small subset of people that are somewhat immune, but it's pretty, that's small. It might be less than 10%. So, for the rest of us, we have to make decisions about how we're going to escape that gravitational pull of that standard American diet. And by definition, you've got to be pulling at least one of those levers. And the harder you pull one, the less you need to pull the other, right? So, if you're really able to restrict the number of calories you eat, if you just if you can say, look, I'm a robot and I'm going to eat 2,200 calories a day. Well, you can pretty much eat as much, you know, whenever you want and of whatever you want, if you're willing to really restrict those number of calories. Now that might be a miserable existence because if you're going to eat 2,200 calories of, you know, potato chips every day, you're going to, I think you're still going to be pretty hungry. Um, so I think it really comes down to kind of figuring out what works for any given individual. Um, and what the trade-offs are by the way. So I, you know, for me, I tend to restrict, I tend to do a little bit of dietary restriction, not much caloric restriction, not much time restriction. So I, I tend to get most of my escape from the standard American diet through dietary restriction, kind of what I'm not eating. And, um, that's kind of how I, I, sort of maintain my, my health. But of course I've done them all right. Like I know what it's like to, you know, eat one meal a day for years. I know what it's like to be keto where it's the most extreme form of dietary restriction. I think, you know, along with maybe, you know, something vegan or totally carnivore or something kind of like insane. But I just think that people need to be at least mindful of where, where are they applying their restriction? But I also think there's a downside. Like I think too much time restriction is problematic. And I think that's become a little bit trendy right now where people say, you know, as long as I just only eat within a six hour window, I can eat whatever I want. And the reality of it is there's nothing magical about time restriction. It's really just a way to get caloric restriction. Yeah. So when people. Yeah. That's the
2: dangerous thing for me, all of the, like for, for, for me. And again, this is anecdotal for me, but for me, my experience with, and I've run into people who are like, you know. I have a four hour eating window and I'm eating pizza and I'm having autophagy and it's handling my loose skin. And I'm like, you know, I can, my body still remembers being 550 pounds and remembers how much fun it had <laughs> getting to weigh 550 pounds. And I can do a lot of damage in four hours and like, you know, then be so damaged that I can't move. So I'm not even putting any excess use to the, those calories. And then with the food restriction, I can eat a lot of ribeyes, dude. I can eat a lot of ribeyes. And so I fall into these categories where if I don't use a little bit of ca- caloric restriction, the other two don't matter. But I do utilize all of them. You know, I I don't like to eat after 6 p.m. I feel better if I don't eat after 6 p.m. I don't know why, but so there's my time restriction, right? And if I eat A bunch of carbs at night. I also feel like shit, so I don't do that. You know what I mean. So I'm using all three.
1: Yeah, and and I think one of the things that I see too many people doing, and it's like the worst of both worlds, is they're doing uh, a narrow restriction, a narrow time restriction, and they're eating a normal number of calories, but they're actually deficient in protein. So this is like you just couldn't come up with a worse strategy. Which is, I'm going to eat everything in four hours. And it's going to be tons of food, but I'm probably only going to get 80 grams of protein in there instead of what I probably need, which is 160. And then these people will actually lose some weight or maintain, like they'll be kind of maintaining weight slash potentially losing a little bit of weight. But they're like, you know, I'll see somebody lose five pounds of which 10 was muscle and they put on five pounds of fat. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean that. Unfortunately, that's a very common scenario.
2: It's a bad strategy. I mean, even with the the people who are who are religious about keto, who are like, "No, I can eat ten thousand calories of bacon a day and lose weight," and I'm like, "Dude, you're not losing fat. Maybe you're losing weight on the scale, but you're not losing fat." And and bacon's tough too because that all has sugar in it, so you're probably not even keto at that point.
1: Yeah, and 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 again, I, I think people's ability to kind of estimate how much they're eating is pretty hard, right? I, I think there's ample data to suggest that most people are off by quite a bit when they' um, when they're estimating what they're eating.
2: Yeah, the, the estimation is wild. I, I've in the beginning, because I did spend some time really tracking calories and getting very specific to the gram, everything was weighed. And I did that to the point where I was like, no, I I, I have at least uh, an understanding enough of what a boneless, skinless breast of chicken has in it. I'm no longer counting. Yeah. But prior to that, when I was eyeballing stuff, I was just way off yeah. on everything. Um, do, do you how do you feel about because I, I want to ask your your opinion on like the standard um, American definition of overweight per the. Uh
1: BMI. BMI.
2: Yeah, and then also how you feel about uh, modern day fat activism.
3: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just five dollars. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a MoonPig card. Get 50% off your first card at MoonPig.com. MoonPig.com.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
1: I don't know what the latter means, but I can talk to you about BMI.
2: Okay. So uh, fat activism is there is a a movement today, which says that, um, there is nothing inherently unhealthy about being quote unquote overweight and that, um, overweight people are persecuted, um, much like other marginalized groups.
1: Well, um, I think there's probably some truth to that, but it's, I think it's, uh, if, if it has anything to do with the rest of woke ideology, it's, uh, It's nonsense. And the reality of it is, this should only be a discussion based on sort of physiology and not based on identity politics. So, the reality of it is, overweight and obesity are very good, but far from perfect markers of health. Right. In other words, there are a subset of people who are overweight and even obese who are metabolically healthy. And conversely, there are a number of lean individuals who, you know, at a distance look fine and on the scale look acceptable, who are metabolically quite unhealthy. So my interest is in the metabolic health part of it. I don't particularly care what the scale says. When we assess patients, we don't even, I I couldn't tell you one of my patients BMI. So if we do a DEXA scan on a patient, which we do on everybody, I care a little bit about what their subcutaneous body fat percent is. I care much more about how much visceral fat they have. I care much more about their fat mass index, their fat-free mass index, their appendicular lean mass index. So what I care about is how much muscle mass do you have? How much fat mass do you have? Where is that fat located? And I care much more about when it's around your organs than when it's under your skin. So again, don't really care about a six-pack. But certainly care about visceral fat, and to me, that's all that matters. So, um, you know, should we be shaming anybody? No, I mean, whether you're fat, whether you're skinny, whether you're healthy, whether you're not healthy, we we just shouldn't be shaming anybody. So, to me, the to me, um, you know, that seems silly. But at the same time, you know, should people who are unhealthy be encouraged to be healthy? Of course they should. I mean, why wouldn't we do that? Right? It's sort of like saying, like, you know. If someone is smoking, should is it shaming them to say it's harmful to smoke? I don't think it is. Right. No, it's, the, it's a, there's a difference between saying that behavior is unhealthy, let's help you not do it versus saying you're a bad person because you smoke. Yeah. And similarly, if somebody's overweight and unhealthy, there's nothing productive to be gained from telling them they're a glutton and a sloth. Instead, we should say, "Hey, how can we help you do something about this?" But but let's not sugarcoat it, right? Let's not say there's nothing wrong with you because there's a pretty good chance if your BMI, if we're going to use that silly metric, if your BMI is over 30, odds are it is going to negatively impact your health.
2: Right. So all of this uh medical, like the BMI, that's an aggregate of averages, right? So
1: it, it points. And it's out- a horrible one. I mean, it's so that's why we just can't even look at it. It's so dumb.
2: Right. But as I guess my question is this as America, because it really does seem to be rapidly gaining more and more weight, more and more people are obese, regardless of BMI. As that shift happens, do the standards that we call health shift with it?
1: Well, I mean, that's a that that's a that's a question probably for for um you know the advocates, right? So Um, let's look at like liver function tests, right? So if you go to the doctor and get a blood test, anybody who's listening to this has had a blood test, a complete metabolic panel. There's two numbers that you get that represent, um, you know, liver function tests. They're they're enzymes called transaminases, AST and ALT. And like every lab value, they show you a range and the range is predicated on population norms. And those ranges change as the population changes. So for ALT and AST, they typically tell you it's normal, quote unquote, normal, as long as it is up to some number, usually the 90th percentile of the population or the 80th percentile of the population. But those numbers today are very different from those numbers 40 years ago. Right. In other words, those numbers have drifted up over 40 years. So what is considered normal today was not normal in 1982. Now, what has changed? Well, what's changed is we have far more fatty liver disease in the country today than we did 40 years ago. And a lot of that is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is obviously very coupled to obesity and insulin resistance. So again, it becomes a bit of a semantic question, right? you could have an ALT and an AST of 38 and 39 today, and you're technically normal according to most labs. But I promise you, if we do an ultrasound of your liver, you have fat in it. So you'll be called normal, but you're not really normal if normal is having no fat in your liver. So I think that's basically you know, if people want to say, we're going to change the definition of overweight to no longer a BMI of 25, which is where the cutoff is today, but we're going to say, we're going to bump it to 29. Okay. Well, all of a sudden we'll have a lot less overweight people by that definition, but that hasn't changed anything in terms of the physiology.
2: Right. That's what, that's, that's, I think, where they're going eventually, because like to your point, it's, I mean, it's already happening in medicine. If normal now equals fatty liver is now normal, then most people have a
1: fatty liver disease. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, we look, we do the same thing across the board, right? We could say, well, the definition of type two diabetes is going to, we're going to stretch it up a little bit. And all of a sudden we're going to, we could, we could overnight half the number of people with type two diabetes in the country, if we change the definition.
2: Yeah. There was something, and I, I probably should have been on them before, but in, I don't know, 1999 or 2000, the, the, the uh, whatever hypertension was shifted, but it shifted the other way. It shifted lower. So now hypertension was, and, and I, I have to get um, insurance for every job I do. And they were like, oh, you have hypertension. And I was like, it's this number. My number hasn't changed since the last time I was here you know, three months ago. And they're like, yeah, but now you have to take a pill. And so my blood sugar, my blood pressure has been perfect for 20 years, but it, it's only been perfect because the numbers changed. Yeah. It's, it's a confusing thing. How much does weight loss play a part in you? Like, are you seeing a lot of overweight people? Is that something people are coming to you to,
1: to, to deal with? No, we don't really, I mean, I shouldn't, I mean, I I certainly wouldn't suggest that I have any expertise in weight loss. Um, it's not uh it's not it's not the problem I'm sort of trying to solve. I think it's I think weight weight loss happens incidentally a lot when things get better. So as your health improves, if you're starting out at a at an above healthy weight, your weight will typically improve a little bit, but I don't um, I don't know much about. there's a lot of stuff I don't know much about and and sort of weight loss and physique training and all that kind of stuff is is really pretty far outside of my wheelhouse.
2: I mean maybe, but I've, I I've read some of your writing and I go, this is all applicable. It's all applicable. So I think if you're dealing with lifespan and health span, I, by the way, I like the way you phrase those two things because I do think they are different things. Because lifespan has increased, but now we have a bunch of people on a bunch of drugs that are all not optimal. Um, I think that I can use that for weight loss.
1: Yeah, again, I think I think you know weight loss will typically come with with making healthier. I, but I think it's important to focus on the right goal, and I I just feel like my niche is really getting people to focus on lifespan and health span. And, and let the, let the weight loss happen along the way, but, but have that focus be on, on health. Um, and cause, and, and the reason is sometimes weight loss doesn't happen, right? Sometimes weight loss can be really stubborn. And I, I, I think you can, I haven't met somebody in whom you can't get them metabolically healthier if you do all the right things, but I have seen people in whom, when you do a lot of right things, it's still really hard to get weight loss in right. every case
2: but you can increase all other aspects like to your, to you, you were talking about the outliers on either side, relatively lean people who were metabolically unhealthy and relatively heavy people who were metabolically healthy. Um, by the way, I did read a, a paper once that said like the 90% of the benefit of weight loss happens within 10% of the weight loss itself. So you you get the the health benefit over just starting to do that?
1: Well, it's probably a bit more complicated than that. And it, and it certainly depends where you're starting. Um, but it is true that, you know, that first bit of weight loss usually removes also some of the most harmful fat. So again, there's really not that much harm in having extra subcutaneous fat. And we know this on so many levels, but a very extreme example of this is when you do liposuction on people, which is only removing subcutaneous fat, you don't improve their health one bit, right? So they look better, they weigh less, you haven't changed their metabolic health one bit. Conversely, if a person loses the same amount of weight that you take off from another subject during liposuction... Their metabolic health gets dramatically better. And to your point, it doesn't have to be a staggering amount of weight. It's not like with liposuction, you're taking off 10% of a person's body weight. And it seems that a big part of the issue is where that fat is coming from. And that's what's different between those two people. The liposuction patient is having all of that weight taken off subcutaneously. The person who takes that weight off with a caloric deficit, with exercise, you know, they're losing visceral fat. They're losing peripancreatic fat. They're losing liver fat. They're losing intramuscular fat. It's those places that fat spills out of from the fat cells that is really toxic to the body. So it's the fat that spills into the liver, into the viscera, around the heart, around the kidneys, around the pancreas, within the muscles itself that creates insulin resistance. This is not a huge amount of fat, but it's very poorly placed. Right. So for you... If your considerations are
2: lifespan and span, would you prefer to see somebody go into a caloric deficit simply through exercise alone? Like if you had to choose two things and you had to say like, we're going to affect your, um, your, your weight or whatever, we're going to affect your visceral fat by either restricting food or increasing
1: exercise probably depends where they're starting. I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to want everybody exercising regardless. So that means with some people, they have to actually eat more to accommodate for the increase in exercise that we're going to put them through. I mean, again, exercise, it just can't be overstated what a potent drug it is. And we don't have a drug, nothing. We don't have anything that compares to exercise in terms of its potency to, to affect lifespan. And when it comes to health span. I mean, nothing even gets within the same zip code when you really think about what, what constitutes health span. So I would say we're just going to be increasing exercise in most people regardless. Right. And you know, the nutrition comes out where it, where it may, as your activity level goes down, your appetite tends to usually go down. So as you, as you increase activity, you know, you'll often see appetite go up as a result of it. So there, there, they're a little difficult to uncouple. The other thing is, you know, you have to be playing this game sustainably. So, you know, you said earlier, yeah, you could weigh 250, but it gets pretty hard to focus on anything other than not eating. Yeah. Um, and and I think that one can do that for a season, but if you're playing the long game, it might be hard to do that indefinitely.
2: Well, and that's where I start to think about um, – if I change uh, my exercise routine from this very physique oriented structure to increased cardio, increased functional exercise, not not to leave out, I'll still do bench press, you know what I mean, and lat pull downs and stuff like that. But it has been very, very specific, you know. And I, so I start to increase my, my cardio a bit. And, and like, I've done a full marathon on a rowing machine in my life. And, and now it's very hard to do 20 minutes on a rowing machine. So that for me is a gauge of going like, Oh, I need to do more of this. Like I need that. Um, and, and that's kind of what I'm using now, but I also think I'll probably lose some muscle mass doing that. And so I have a little bit of fear in that, but then if my overall weight comes down, I'm okay with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, you know, at your weight, at your height, you're, you're going to be above the 99th percentile for appendicular lean mass index, fat free mass index. You're someone who can afford to lose a little bit of muscle mass. If, yeah. When When we have people that are starting out at the 20th percentile, it's, it's actually a much more difficult problem because we, they have to be able to put on muscle mass while removing fat mass. And sometimes those things they're hard to do at the same time. So you have to kind of do these things in phases,
2: but there is that magical thing. Like if you get a guy who hasn't ever been to the gym, hasn't ever done any of this, I bet you do see miracles like that, where I'm jealous because I've been dieting for 20 years and, and versions of exercise for 16. um, Where for me, the idea of uh, reducing body fat and increasing muscle mass is not really in the cards at all. But retaining muscle mass while I lose body fat is it's just long and slow. And the idea of just blitzing through and increasing my cardio a whole bunch is a whole other paradigm that I I haven't thought about in a while. But I go like, yeah, I'll lose a little bit of muscle mass. It's not the end of the world. I'm getting I'm getting the okay from you. I'm basically I'm basically using this as like a a, a session with you. (laughs) you know, so, so that is all fine.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would just not neglect your cardio. I think, you know, you're, you're, you're at an age now where you really want to minimize the setbacks and you really want to make sure you're compounding your gains. So, you know, you're, you're going to be losing, um, both, especially top end, but you're going to be losing, um, aerobic efficiency, uh, just by the nature of, of aging. So, you don't want to go through that t- phase again where you kind of get out of shape.
2: Yeah. I, f- I feel, I mean, coming back to uh, cardio with a lot of interest feels already a bit like that anyway, um, that I, because it's very foreign, you know, for a few years, cardio was a walk or a, a bit of time on an elliptical machine. And now real effort into cardio is like, holy shit, this, I have to relearn this practically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you, you want to sort of not get out of shape anymore. Right. Stay. So even if you're doing a film and you're really busy, if you can just get 20 minutes, you know, a day, which I I mean, I've been on film sets with friends of mine and I mean, it sucks. I, 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 it seems like the world's worst life. So I know 20 minutes can be really hard in that setting, but you know, it makes such a difference.
2: I did it. I did a movie last year and I was in Mexico for four months and I was, I found a way to get to a gym every day before work. And then days when it was truly impossible, I just would go outside and walk for a while. And that, and so, yeah, but
1: everything. And you about could do that there, with, you could do those with carries, like make it harder by, you know, and again, you don't have to, if you just wanted to walk 20 minutes holding two 30 pound dumbbells, you're going to make it a lot harder. Yeah, dude.
2: I have a go rock and just putting a 35 pound kettlebell in it is, is a total nightmare, which is yeah. shocking since which, I when you was consider
1: so how mad. much you used to weigh, right? It's crazy.
2: 35 <laughs> extra pounds or putting on like a plate carrier and walking around in that with heavy plates in it. It's, it's awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I was hundreds of pounds heavier than I am now. And, and you know, didn't like to walk, but certainly had to, and had to be on my feet all day at work. Do you have
1: siblings? I have a younger sister. And is she overweight? Yeah. Yeah. And your parents, my mother,
2: Was a- always on a diet, and uh, but when I was young, she was not overweight. And then, it, it, you know, the last twenty years, she's gained a good amount of weight. But my father, no.
1: So, what did they think when you were ten and weighed two hundred pounds? Like, I assume that that they were asking doctors, "Hey, what do we think is going on here?" And what what explanation was offered? I was, um, I the, uh,
2: the first diet I was ever put on. I was five. And it was just a restrictive diet, just like you can't have more food. And I started sneaking food and I got very good at sneaking Mm -hmm. food. And I think, um, honestly, if we'd lived anywhere but Los Angeles, maybe they would have come to a workable solution. But what would happen would be I would go on to the newest fad diet, which always seems to hit Los Angeles first. And I, I was just on so many different crazy diets that I fought against because they didn't always make any sense to me. Um, you know, there was a period of time where I was uh, just – red foods were taken away from me. And, and this would get down to like red cabbage is not good for you with no explanation. And then, (laughs) you know, there was another time where it was all white foods and I was put on the cabbage soup diet. My mom had me on the Beverly Hills diet, which was like all pineapple for weeks at a time. And then you get a papaya and like papaya to me still tastes and smells like shit. And, and so that as the treat after two weeks of pineapple was not much of a treat. There was a a potato diet. Like I've done, I was put on all of these
1: diets. Did, did any of them work for a time?
2: The one that worked for a time. And then my mom decided she didn't like it and switched diets on me was Optifast. And I think I was like 12 or 13 and I was put on Optifast. I was, you know, I was told I could have as much diet soda as I wanted, which I loved because my mom was very much into health food and we didn't have soda in our house and so i was drinking these shakes and going to these group meetings and talking to people about weight loss and i was actually into it and then like a week later but i'd lost weight like i noticed weight loss my clothes were getting loose a couple of weeks into it and she was like oh you're not doing this anymore you're going to do the candida diet and and so it was just like all these fits and starts with diets none of them ever took hold i you know i was on atkins when that was very new but yeah, so I, I was just... And,
1: and have you ever tried or has anyone ever talked to you about semaglutide? No. So the, the drug, um, it's a recently approved drug for treating obesity. It's a GLP-1 agonist, but it's, I think, hands down the best drug ever approved for weight loss. What does it affect? Primarily, it affects your appetite, but it also affects insulin sensitivity. So, uh, GLP one is a, is a peptide produced by your gut. And if you, so this drug is basically just exogenously giving you more of that. And it's a remarkable satiety hormone. So, uh, we have a number of patients that are taking this drug with, um, usually pretty impressive results. Oh, wow. Um, the, the drawback of course, is it, it, in the short run, at least for about eight weeks, it can increase, it can cause nausea, but you know, many patients will say that that's totally fine. Cause that's what keeps them from eating. Um, and it's not like, you know, nausea, like chemotherapy nausea, but, um, so yeah, it's an injection that you take once a week, uh, like a little sub Q injectable pen. And, um, it's, I, I think it's, it's really going to change the game here a little bit now, unfortunately it's still a pretty expensive drug. So I don't know under which conditions the insurance companies are approving it, but it's um, presumably at a, at a at a high enough BMI. I'm assuming that's the metric by which they'll approve it. It'll. Um,
2: What's the cost of a course, and how long would you be on something like this?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what the cash cost is, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's ten grand a year. It's it's probably pretty expensive. Right now, I mean, I. I, I think they're basically suggesting you just go on this indefinitely um, right. or at least, or cycle it. I mean, the, 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 the very sort of popular uh, study that came out about a year ago had patients on it, I think for about 68 weeks and they lost, I don't remember, I want to say 20% of their body weight wow. um, and and they, it just stayed off. So it's, it's pretty durable. It's um, it's a, it's a pretty impressive drug. So semaglutide is the name it's manufactured under a different, like Ozempic is the way it's used if you're using it for type two diabetes. Um, But it has a different brand name for obesity, but it's all the same drug. It's semaglutide.
2: I'm going to, I'm going to look into this for sure. I, when I, when I go back through, there's so much about my eating, which is um, emotional and not has nothing to do with hunger, but I wonder if, and you know, even today, like my wife, Likes to go out to dinner, which for me, I'm a sober person who's been on a diet for twenty years. Going out to dinner offers really nothing for mm-hmm. me, fun. Um, and I'll sometimes eat before we go, just so that I'm not compelled to eat a pasta that is covered in fat or something like that. And even then, I still find myself like having the urge when I'm not hungry to put something in my mouth and chew it to kind of relax me. So, that that's my one concern with any of this is like, I don't know that I was ever eating because I was over hungry. I think I was eating because I have some compulsion problems that I'm trying to work through, but I, I am going to look into that. Cause it sounds fantastic.
1: Yeah. Well, but I mean, I think it's good that you recognize that because you're right. I mean, you could certainly eat through this drug, but I would like to think that the drug makes it less appealing.
2: Right. Yeah. 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 I, I was put on as a kid, uh, Fen mm. which I remember just not being able to sleep. I don't remember going through a, a period of weight loss from that, but I, I think I became super irritable and they took me off before it was pulled from the market. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot, <laughs> there's, there's so many different things that people are dealing with that we can't just say it's all this or it's all that, um, but I, I, but I think it's fascinating. And I like, I really, really appreciate how you present this stuff because it's um, it's refreshing, you know? I mean, it is to, to, to not have somebody going just like eat keto, (laughs) you know?
1: Well, here's to the, the, the diet of no name and the, the diet with no religion.
2: Yeah. No religion. I love it. And, and by the way, I'm a big fan of religions. Like there's just, there's just so much less offensive offense. It's less offensive to me when somebody's aware that it's a religion, you know what I mean? Like I live this way because it's God's plan and I go, okay, good for you. I don't, there's no moment where I feel like I have to be a part of that person's interpretation of God. But when it's like, I live this way because science and I'm like, I don't know that your and I's uh, values are exactly lined up and objectives are exactly lined up. So who are you to tell me science, anything, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: Uh, Peter, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate talking to you.
1: Well, thanks for having me, man. It was great chatting. You too. Talk to you soon. All right. See you.
4: And now for the Q&A. Here is a question from Eric. Hi, Eric. Eric says, hello, Ethan. My name is Eric and I am a big fan. I just started listening to your podcast and I'm hooked. I'm over 400 pounds and have lost and gained weight most of my adult life. I would like to know what books you might suggest to help me start living a healthier life. Keep up the great work. Love the podcast.
2: Hey, thank you very much, Eric. Um, Fat Loss for Life uh, by Lane Norton. Um, bigger, leaner, stronger by Mike Matthews, uh, muscle for life by, uh, Mike Matthews. If you start with any of those, I think they, they're all, they're all basically of the same school of thought. Um, y- y- you know, health being a subjective thing, they are from the position that you are going to increase your quote unquote health by decreasing your uh, body fat percentage and increasing lean mass. And so that is a good general uh, way to increase the metric of health. But, you know, I'm sure there's lots of different ways you could get healthy. Uh, if I don't know the book that says like, watch less TV and go for a walk, but I'm sure there's a book that says that that probably will lead you to health too. But if we're talking about health in the realm of, you know, if you're trying to handle, if you go like, I'm unhealthy because I have high blood, high blood, uh, high blood cholesterol, high cholesterol, then like, you might need to do more specific things. But generally all of those things, like high cholesterol, uh, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, hypertension. These things do generally get resolved with weight loss. So I, you know, that's, that's my go-to is weight loss. Maybe he's like, going to say like, fuck you. I had a cold and you're telling me to lose weight. (laughs) Like, I'm so sorry. I am hyper focused on weight loss. That's my, the thing I think about.
4: Yeah. I think you have interpreted it correctly considering he mentions his weight and you know, he's, he's looking for that change. So I think, uh, I think you did a good job.
2: (laughs) I really do. (laughs) I struggled through that one.
4: (laughs) No, you did. I know what you mean though. And it's interesting because right. We could name tons of different books and that are helpful you know in different realms of our lives but he mentioned weight and i think um and i know you've nah, talked so about it's those. fair it's fair and you've talked yeah. about those books before and those are some authors that you've even had on the show and you know so love yeah. it great well thank you for that if anyone else has a question that they would like answered <laughs> on this podcast please send it to us at americanglutton.net
2: thanks for listening to this episode of american glutton i'm ethan suplee You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.